Welcome to the World Resources Institute's podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I could not be more thrilled than to welcome Jane Lubchenco to the studio today. Jane is the University Distinguished Professor at Oregon State University. She's one of the world's foremost ocean ecologists. She's a former board member here at the World Resources Institute. And among her many important uh, roles, she is the uh, former head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the U.S. body that oversees uh, the ocean. Uh, Jane, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lawrence. I'm delighted I, to be here. I'm just so thrilled to have you here. Um, I got to know you recently by reading an essay that appears in a new book, a very hopeful book called A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future, edited by Daniel Etsy. Um, I've only read yours, but if the other essays are as good as yours, then um, I have something to pick me up out of the doldrums I sometimes fall into reading the news. It's a wonderful uh, list of solutions, and your own piece about the ocean is very, very inspiring. So I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks. Um, reading your bio, I see that you grew up in Colorado. You can't get too much further from the ocean than Colorado. How did a girl from Colorado wind up being one of the world's top ocean ecologists? Well, Colorado was an ancient ocean after all, uh, but you're right. I did grow up in Colorado, in Denver specifically, and um, my five sisters and I spent a lot of time out of doors. We did a lot of hiking and climbing. We were all avid swimmers and springboard divers. Uh, we took to the water naturally, and I loved natural history. I loved being out in the mountains um, and being active and learning about things. Uh, but between my junior and senior years in college, I had an opportunity to spend a summer at Woods Hole at the Marine Biological Laboratory, and I took a course in invertebrate zoology, all those critters without backbones. And I thought, oh my gosh, there is this whole new world that I didn't really know existed. And I was blown away by the beauty, the majesty, the incredible mysteries of life in the ocean. And that was my turning point. I decided this is what I want to do. This is so cool and there's so much more to learn. And I could study for the rest of my life and never you know, really scratch the surface. So it was really love at first sight. You have a very long list of prestigious academic publications to your name, but I also have learned that you have been a lifelong advocate and practitioner of science education. And I think about that a lot because there is such an urgent need now for scientists to communicate with the broader public. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that. I really do believe that science is not only really fun and interesting, but it's also useful, not just in the sense of inventing new devices and saving, you know, improving our health, but helping us understand ourselves, how the world works, how it's changing, how we can do a better job of behaving so that we get the end results we want. And I think that there in addition to scientists pursuing new knowledge, we also have an obligation to share that knowledge broadly, not just in the peer-reviewed literature with other scientists, but with the public, with policymakers, with business leaders. And most scientists don't have any training in doing that. And so 
even though even though they might think it's a good idea, it's not an easy thing to do. I like to think of the importance of scientists becoming bilingual, where they are taught to speak the language of science, but they're also taught to speak the language of lay people. And I think being able to make scientific information more accessible, more interesting, credible, and useful is a really important mission for scientists broadly. Um, the essay that we're going to talk about today, People and the Ocean, a new narrative with transformative benefits is a great example of that kind of work because I'm not a scientist. I'm certainly not an ocean scientist, but I found it hugely compelling. And you begin basically by telling three stories. You call them narratives. Um, the first is the ocean is too big to fail, and that's the one I grew up with. The ocean is so big, we couldn't possibly hurt the ocean, which is, by the way, what we used to think about the atmosphere, too, come to think of it. Talk to us about that first narrative. I imagine it's the, the narrative that humans have held for eons. And it's obvious where that narrative comes from. The ocean is immense. It is just huge. And it seems like it is endlessly resilient, endlessly bountiful. It was just impossible for people throughout most of history to imagine depleting it or disrupting it. You know, I remember in the 60s, there was the mantra that dilution is the solution to pollution. Well, I can't imagine a bigger opportunity to dilute stuff than the ocean. Uh, so I think it is very obvious why we have thought about the ocean as being impervious to human activities for so long. But that idea that it is simply too big to fail has become very glaringly not accurate. Which brings us to the narrative that most of us currently believe, which is the ocean is doomed. And to mention just one, the great ocean garbage patch. We've all heard about the size of Texas, the bleaching of the corals, the increased temperatures, the increased acidity. Um, as a person who loves the ocean, I find it drives me to despair. Yeah. There is uh, so much doom and gloom in the coverage of the ocean today. We have major challenges, and they're coming from multiple quarters. The things that you mentioned, but also depleted fisheries, for example, or nutrient pollution causing dead zones, uh, toxins in the ocean. Every time you turn around, it seems like we're discovering a new problem. The, the new uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, special report that just came out at the end of September focuses on the ocean and the cryosphere, the ice and says in no uncertain terms that the ocean has been a very significant victim of climate change. But it also identifies some new challenges like marine heat waves. We didn't used to think about marine heat waves. I remember when I saw it in the paper in the morning, I was like, oh my God, one more exactly. thing to have to be worried about. Exactly. So there is a huge amount of despair and doom and gloom. And the narrative that has emerged has shifted from, gee, it's too big to fail, to, oh my gosh, it's too big to fix. It is too complicated. The drivers are too ingrained. They're too complex. System inertia is too large. It's just hopeless. 
And I believe that that doom and gloom um, really leads to despair and inaction. And I can't help but see not only the immense challenges that all those problems present, for sure, but also all the amazing solutions that are already out there, they just aren't the scale to be making a difference yet. Which brings us to the third narrative. It's a little more complex. How would you encapsulate the narrative that you, and I, sh I mentioned that you're the uh, one of the three co-chairs of the um, expert panel, the expert group advising the high-level panel. I think that's where that work is focused too. What is the new narrative in a nutshell? This new narrative is just beginning to emerge and it recognizes how central the ocean is to so many things that are important to us. It is important from a food security standpoint. Currently, three billion people depend on seafood for a significant fraction of their protein. And a larger number depend on fisheries as, for their livelihoods. So the ocean is central to food security. It is central to uh, our health, not only because of the importance of um, seafood as a healthy component of our diet, but from a mental standpoint. You know, people love to go to the ocean to recreate. It has soothing characteristics. It's fun. Uh, it's just a great place to either play or be inspired. Uh, we're recognizing how important the ocean is from a climate standpoint. The ocean really controls the climate. It is a key player in the climate system. So the ocean is so central to so many different things that we care about and to our future that I believe the new narrative that is beginning to emerge that needs to be nurtured is that the ocean is so important. It is so central to our future. It's too big to ignore. And so I think we've gone full, you know, this th three narratives have really uh, one overtaken another, overtaken another. And we've gone from it's too big to fail to, oh my gosh, it's too big to fix to, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's too big to ignore. So if it's too big to ignore, that assumes there are things that we can do. And of course, there are many of them. Um, we'll talk today about three, two that are in your wonderful essay. Um, the first of these is better fisheries management. And I, I know that you're a person who's led a lot of the research on this. And the other, the other one we're going to talk about is uh, marine protected areas. I think the bad old approaches to fisheries grew out of this first narrative that it doesn't matter what we do, uh, you know, we can do anything, we can take as much out. Um, fishery managers, fishery scientists have known for a long time that we need to uh, be paying attention to how fast the population of fish is growing and um, things like that. Uh, but the truth is getting fishery management right has not been an easy thing to do and there have been a lot of mistakes along the way. In the United States, we've had some major successes in turning fisheries around. For decades and decades and decades, it was more overfishing and more overfishing, despite the best of intentions of managers and scientists, despite 
the knowledge that fishermen have that they don't want to overfish because, of course, they want to be able to continue fishing. But there were too many um, drivers of overfishing that hadn't been addressed. And in uh, during the four years that I uh, had the pleasure of serving as the head of NOAA, uh, NOAA manages fisheries in federal waters for the United States. And we had some major successes in implementing legislation that had been passed before uh, we came into office. So it was passed in 2005, implemented, begun in 2006. But the real challenges of implementation didn't come until the period of time that I was there, which was 2009 to 2013. And, and what's the key idea that flips the fishery from one of overfishing to sustainability? I'm sure there are many, many approaches, but is there a central key that non-experts could understand? First of all, um, the quotas for the fisheries should not exceed what scientific advice says is sustainable. That seems like a no-brainer, but it hadn't been done, number one. Number two, change the incentives for fishermen to reward them for being good stewards of the resource. And, and what would that mean in practical terms? That means a type of fishery management that in the United States is called catch shares. Uh, elsewhere around the world, it's often called uh, secure access approaches or right, rights-based management approaches. But it means giving the, stake, the fishermen a stake in the future and engaging them in making the decisions uh, in ways that empower them but also hold them accountable. And there are ways to do that that have succeeded uh, in very impressive ways. For example, in the United States, if we compare the year 2000 to the year 2016, I'm sorry, 2018, in the year 2000, we had zero, uh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> in the year 2000, we had 92 stocks of fish that were overfished by the year 2018 that had been slashed uh, by about two-thirds. This reminds me, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it reminds me that it seems like it has an analogy on the land that if nobody owns the forests and I've got a chainsaw, I'll cut them down. But if I own the forest, I'm going to cut more selectively. I'm going to protect the trees. I'm going to ensure that they regenerate. So it's about clarifying property rights. So there are elements of that in this uh, more enlightened fishery management, for sure. Uh, the challenge is nobody owns the ocean. Uh, and so these new management systems that are working are uh, drawing on elements of uh, a, 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 a right to have a certain amount of, of a certain percentage of the fishery. And that can turn things around. And we've seen not only uh, ending of overfishing, but rebuilding of stocks that were previously overfished and have now come back sometimes decades sooner than we thought they would. So we've learned from this experience with fishermen leading the way that you can turn fisheries around. It's not easy, but it is possible. And as a result of the US experience, Europe passed some very progressive fishery management reforms to mimic what we have done. And a number of countries have done something similar. So we're beginning to see the elements of how to 
turn fisheries around. And of course, when you stop overfishing and you build those stocks back up, there are a lot more fish in the ocean. So that's not only more fish to be caught and served on your dinner plate, but it is more profits for the industry, which of course gets countries and businesses attention. But it also means more fish in the ocean because those fish are an important component of ocean um, ecosystems. So it's a triple bottom line win if you can end overfishing and rebuild those stocks. There's a lot more fish out there in the ocean today in US waters than there used to be because we have good fishery management. I think a lot of people have no idea. I find that so encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, should we return to the marine protected areas? Sure. So I think you pioneered the research on ma marine protected areas. They're now in the news. People have a general idea that you set aside a piece of the ocean, protect it from extraction. Um, you mentioned, maybe let's go back a little bit early. You mentioned in your essay that this is actually an ancient concept among Polynesian people, Yes. that they knew this. Yes. Talk to me about that. So I think it's useful to start even farther back. You know, the ocean used to be a de facto fully protected marine reserve because most of it was too far away, too deep, too inaccessible to fish or extract other resources routinely. So most of it used to be protected, and we used only a very small part of it. Modern technology has allowed us to exploit, mine, fish, drill pretty much every place. Many Polynesian cultures had practices that involved some sort of taboo where there were areas that were set aside where it was not allowed to fish in that area. And it might be a place or it might be a time of year, for example, the spawning season. Uh, and so that was just a, a, a part of their culture that was a fishery management that allowed a sustainable use of the resource. So you're right, marine protected areas are not a new idea. That said, the, if you total up the amount of protected area globally, it's still just a drop in the bucket. Only about two to three percent of the ocean is fully protected from any extractive or destructive activities. I think I read in Wikipedia that you put forward the idea of 20% by 2020, but then if I remember correctly in your essay, you said 30% by 2030. So I guess as we learn more about this, we realize that the benefits would suggest setting aside more. Do I have that right? That's absolutely correct. Many, many scientists and different groups of scientists have calculated how much do we actually need. And the common expert judgment now is at least 30% in fully to highly implemented marine protected areas. And so that is, there's a new sort of rallying cry, if you will, around uh, having that be the target for 2030. The countries of the world have agreed to uh, try to protect 10% by 2020. Well, that's right around the corner. And there, many countries are working very diligently to achieve that in their own exclusive economic zones, the waters over which they have responsibility. For example, the United States uh, in 2008, when President Obama 
uh, was elected in so 2009 when he took office, four um, percent of the U.S. exclusive economic zone was in highly to fully protected status. By the time he left office, it was about 25 percent, and so over fivefold increase uh, in that period of time. So it is possible. Um, quite a few other nations have done the same. Some Palau as much as 80 percent. So some are really going big and bold because they understand how important it is to their future. And so this is about rebalancing oceans. It's about using them without using them up. And the two things we've talked about, which are smart fishery management, fishing smarter, not harder, fishing in ways that uh, allow a healthy ocean is critically important. But so too is it important to have areas where we're not fishing. And it's not one versus the other. We need both of them. They are highly complementary. And you mention in the essay that when the well-managed fisheries are adjacent to a highly protected or totally protected area, then of course the fish don't know where they are. So they swim into the fishery area and the fishermen are delighted. They've got more fish to catch. So they then become enforcers of the protected zone. They come to understand this helps them. Fishermen know full well exactly where the edge is and they do what's called fishing the line because that's where the spillover is. So the these, fish unfortunately don't know where they the went fish don't the line. know. <laughs> so these are two examples where we have a solution. We do know how to reform fisheries and make them more sustainable. We do know how to design and create uh, very effective marine protected areas. We know that they work. Uh, but neither of those solutions is at the scale that we need. And so it's not a question of having to create some new invention to devise some new solution. We have solutions in hand. That doesn't mean they're easy to implement, mind you, but we have them and we need to figure out how to replicate those, how to scale them up so that they can be making a difference. I want to turn now to the uh, first report of the high-level panel on the uh, sustainable ocean economy, which is the ocean is the solution to climate change. I find that one more problematic, to be perfectly frank, mm, because okay. you mentioned there's the view that the ocean is a victim of climate change, mm -hmm. but positioning it as a solution seemed to me, as a non-excerpt, to be asking a lot <laughs> from a living body, a global organism, that has already suffered a lot of insults. Tell me why I'm wrong. So this is another arena where the ocean has been out of sight, out of mind. When people think about mitigation of climate change, so that means reducing carbon emissions, we tend to think about making our transportation systems more energy efficient, making our buildings more efficient, um, having uh, pr prov producing renewable energy, uh, or for example, uh, planting forests, planting trees. Those are all things that are on land. We've pretty much ignored what the opportunities are in the ocean. And this group of scientific experts that were convened by the high-level panel to really crunch the numbers and do the first quantitative analysis of what opportunity is there to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 
from ocean-based activities uh, really resulted in some big surprises. So this independent group of folks looked at five different uh, categories. One is renewable energy from the ocean, so wind energy, for example, but there are others. Uh, two, uh, decarbonizing shipping, so making shipping much more energy efficient and, and without carbon. Three is protecting what are called blue carbon ecosystems. Those are things like salt marshes, mangroves, seagrass beds that are just sucking up CO2 like crazy, but we're losing those habitats. So if we can protect them and restore them so that they can then be sucking up carbon, that is a huge benefit. The fourth one is shifting diets, our diets, people's diets, to include more seafood, more protein from the sea, instead of animal protein from the land, because the latter is so carbon intensive. And then the fifth thing that they looked at was sequestering carbon in the seabed. And of those, the first four are pretty much ready to go. The fifth one has a lot of question marks around it, not ready for prime time, needs more R&D. But if you add all of those, the potential from all of those together, it could get us as much as 21% of the carbon emission reductions that we need to get to the 1.5 degree target by 2050. One-fifth of what we need. That's amazing. One-fifth of what we need to stay at the uh, 1.5 degree centigrade ceiling. Yeah. We, we hope it'll become a ceiling. Um, that is indeed, I think, big and important news. I was struck in reading the report that it does not address offshore oil and gas. It says it's been addressed elsewhere and the trajectory is clear. Um, I think they're pulling their punches. I don't think the trajectory is clear at all. Um, I wonder what you think. So the charge to the committee was to simply say, how much bang for the buck could we get from these different activities, which is what I just summarized for you. Um, I personally believe we should not be doing any more oil drilling uh, for oil and gas uh, offshore. I think that is just sheer folly. That just contributes to the problem. Uh, so the report d wasn't, uh, the, the authors were not really charged with talking about oil and gas. They were charged with looking for opportunities to reduce carbon emissions from sources that people hadn't really explored. Do you have, and I know this goes a bit beyond the report, but the reduction in emissions, this 20% of what's necessary to uh, stay below the 1.5 degrees, um, how does that compare with the emissions being generated by offshore oil and gas? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. It no. is known. I just don't know it. I see. Um, we've gone longer than we normally go. <laughs> I normally go 20 minutes. We went uh, well past that. Um, one of the things I told you that I really admired in the essay uh, is the quality of your prose throughout and the, uh, the final uh, piece, which ends on a very hopeful note. And I wondered if, in closing, I could ask you to read that. <laughs> sure, be I'd be happy to. Yep. Glad you have it here. We are beginning to understand how interconnected the ocean is with our food system, climate system, health, and well-being. 
In creating a new vision, we could address a range of broader, interconnected global problems. In short, we have already moved beyond the narrative, the ocean is too big to fail. And now it's time to jettison the current idea, the ocean is too big to fix. We must pursue a more enlightened, humbler, more holistic path and acknowledge the ocean is too important and too big to ignore. It's time to heal the ocean and in the process, heal ourselves. Will you help? That's so lovely. Thank you very much. Um, I always ask my guests if they have any final parting words. I don't know if you have any beyond that or not, but I'll give you the opportunity. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned so much from talking to you. Thanks, Lawrence. It's really been a treat and a pleasure. Um, I just think this is such an exciting time to be alive. There are so many big challenges, but there's so many opportunities. And as a marine scientist, I see in the ocean such beauty, such bounty, such mystery and majesty. And I would like to have that be present for my grandkids. And they are mesmerized by the ocean. We go to the seashore and they just are in heaven. And it's so much fun to be with them. We need to tackle these big challenges and it's not hopeless. We can do it. We have the knowledge. We just need to have the collective will to get on with using that knowledge. Thank you so much. I'm going to hang on to those words. Um, I want to thank you for joining me today. We've been speaking with Jane Lubchenko. She is the University Distinguished Professor at Oregon State University, one of the world's foremost ocean ecologists and one of the three uh, co-chairs of the expert group advising the high-level panel on the ocean and sustainable economy. Uh, you've been listening to the WRI podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thanks for listening. You can find uh, our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else that fine podcasts are given away. Until next time, thank you for listening.